Hey, Wyoming. Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with the University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and all their special guests as they talk all things gardening in the great state of Wyoming. From plant variants to weather events to pesticides and pollinators, our Lawn and Gardening Podcast helps you improve your home garden as well as your small acreage. So let's welcome Jeff Edwards, Jerry Urshabek. Hey everybody, welcome to the KERM Lawn and Garden Program. I'm Jeff Edwards along with Jerry Urshabek. Good morning, Jerry. How are you today? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks. Can we talk about the weather for a minute? Yeah, it's been awesome, hasn't it? Oh, man. <laughs> First of the week, 101, 2, 3, 9. And, and then... <laughs> And then cooling off nicely. Uh, cooling off nicely. Yeah, maybe a little precipitation in there as well. Hope so. Hope for more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Say our guests today, we have two guests. We're doing something a little bit different. Uh, we are starting with uh, Carrie Eberly. She is an assistant professor from University of Wyoming. Good morning, Carrie. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great. How are you? Great. Good to uh, have you on the program today. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. We are excited to have you. And then our other guest is Jenna Meeks. She's an assistant research scientist for the University of Wyoming. Good morning, Jenna. How are you? Good. Thank you. Good to see you. Good to have you with us. Uh, today's program, or at least portion of it, we'll see how it goes. Uh, we'll be talking about the uh, field research station out at Lingle and events that are happening there. But before we do that, let's take a few minutes and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be right back after this. This summer, Wyoming First Lady Jenny Gordon's Wyoming Hunger Initiative, the Sensible Nutrition Program, and the University of Wyoming Extension are partnering to launch a program called Grow a Little Extra. We invite you to join us in growing a little extra to donate fresh produce to local anti-hunger organizations that support our neighbors facing food insecurity. Stop by your local Extension office to pick up your free seeds or donate extra from your garden harvest. For more information, visit www.nohungerwyo.org slash grow, www.nohungerwyo.org slash G-R-O-W. All right. Good morning again, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek, along with Carrie Eberly and Jenna Meeks. And let's just dive right into this. The uh, research station for the University of Wyoming is getting ready to have a field day, the 25th of August. And uh, you ladies have been volunteered to uh, discuss some of the things that are happening out there. So if you could, I don't know which one of you would like to start out, but Jenna, I'm guessing you would like Carrie to start. Is that correct? <laughs> sure. That sounds great. <laughs> oh, sure. Put me on the spot. Yeah. So, yeah. so Carrie, uh, this is your time. Let's talk about things that are happening out there. Where would you like to start? Well, I guess we can start with the field day since that's what you um, led off with. The, the field day is, it's something that we do every year. And last year we were not able to because of rules about public gatherings. Um, but this year we're back on track. And what we try and do is host a open house where we invite the community in to show them 
what we've been working on, what kind of projects are going on at the station. So the researchers who are working out at the experiment station in Lingle are there, as well as undergraduate and graduate students who have research projects. And we really try and present the different things that are happening, partially to provide some education for those who may want to use some of that research on their own farms. And then also because, you know, we're a public facility that is supported by our state and our community. And we think it's really important to be transparent and have people come out and see, see what we've been working on. So, so it's so, a, sorry to interrupt, but this open oh, house is open to everyone, right? It's uh, ag producers, it's the general public, anybody who has an interest in what's happening out at the research station. Absolutely. It is it is open to anyone with any background of any age. We do host a dinner, so that's one great motivator to come out and see us. But this year, you know, we focus on agriculture at the station, but this year we're going to be featuring some horticulture projects. The station put in a new fruit orchard this year. And so that's going to be one of the stops that people can come and see and learn more about. We just finished building our new high tunnel or geodescent dome. Which, uh, which one are we calling it, Jeff? So it's a geo tunnel. A geotunnel. Okay. It's Thank a you. hybrid. <laughs> it is. Because most of these, most of the geodesic things are domes. This one is long and skinny. It looks like it ups a, a loaf of bread. <laughs> so one, one of a kind first in the state, right? It, it is the only one. The only. Yes. That we're so aware we'll, of. Yeah. We will have that featured as well. Um, and then, of course, all the different agricultural research that's going on out there. So, Carrie, this is kind of a kind of not really a loaded question, but what's the coolest thing you're working on out there? You personally? Oh, me personally? What, what do you enjoy the most about all the th different things that you do? So, I love, I mean, I work on alternative crops or new crops for the area. So things that we don't commonly grow. And my research is trying to figure out if maybe we could grow them here and make money on them. I have two projects that I really am excited about. One is on sun hemp, which is a forage crop. And that is going to have two posters on it, as well as a field stop where people can actually see the crop. So as a forage crop, it can be uh, fed to livestock or grazed? Yes. So it can be both fed or grazed. We have done a feeding trial with it where we hate it last year. And then over the winter, we did a steer feeding trial, which people can learn about when they come out. And then hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll be able to do some grazing trials with it. So that's a, that's a fun, exciting project that I really like working on. So is that a is that a, a, a regular hay cutting procedure and baling? It of, of is kind of. It's something we are still learning about. So it's a tropical legume crop and it's fibrous, which is why it's got the word hemp in it. So when you cut it, the leaves tend to get really dry really fast. And so leaf retention in the hay is something that we still need to figure out how to optimize. But in our first year cutting and baling it, I think we still had a protein content of like 16% in our bales. 
So still good protein, good uh, nutritive value in it. And we're hoping that as researchers, we will be able to continue to learn and perfect the harvest methods for the crop in Wyoming um, and help our growers really be able to maximize their production with it. Carrie, is this a, a really tall crop? It can be, yes. I have been growing it for, oh gosh, this is my fourth, fifth year now? Fifth year. And it, here it gets to about five feet tall from, when, from what I have seen of it. Down south, where it's more commonly grown as a forage crop, it can get to, you know, seven, eight, nine feet tall but we don't have the same growing conditions as they do in, in Florida. So it's a little- It bit. certainly feels like it this year with a hundred degrees. Yeah. Right, I, and I'm kind of surprised it hasn't gotten taller this year with how hot it is, but that lack of humidity and that water demand on the crops just, you know, even with good temperatures can affect how well they grow. Probably the cooler nights have something to do with it too. Yeah. Um, so is this a once and done kind of crop or will it regrow? You only harvest it once? It is a once and done kind of crop. So it's a crop that we're going to plant in the beginning of June. And then part of the research we're doing is figuring out when the best time to harvest it is to maximize the tonnage and maximize the nutritive value that you get off of it. Because the later you harvest it, the more you get, but the value may not be what a farmer wants, depending on what their what their you know livestock production is that they're trying sure. to do. Sure. Carrie, can I ask a question? Yeah, you guys um, can ask questions of each other. That's allowed. Sure, I suppose. <laughs> Carrie, did you say can it be grazed in the field? It can be grazed. So again, there's a lot of there's a lot of information on how to feed it that is anecdotal. There's not as much published, replicated science that really lets us be confident in making recommendations. So when you read, you know, extension bulletins and blog posts from down south where they do grow it more, it's commonly grown as a cover crop and it's mixed in with, you know, some other crops like maybe sorghum or corn and then they'll graze it early and till it under before they plant their next crop. Hmm. So for here in Wyoming, we need to figure out if we're going to graze it again, when do you need to graze it? We need to be sure that bloat isn't gonna be an issue and that the, the mix in the graze in the pasture is gonna be appropriate. And then because those stems can get really thick, we need to be sure that the livestock will actually eat it in the field versus in the ration. So this so, is lots of questions still. Yeah. Yeah. I still have questions too. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, not to be stupid, but is this a legume type crop? It is yeah. a legume. Okay. It is, it is a tropical legume. That means that in theory, it should be able to bring nitrogen into the system. So legume crops like alfalfa or beans or peas, the way they work is the roots form a relationship with a bacteria in the soil. And in that relationship, the bacteria gets photosynthetic sugars from the plant 
and the plant gets nitrogen from the bacteria and the bacteria is able to take nitrogen out of the air and convert it into a form that the plants can use and plants cannot do that themselves. So when we have legumes in a rotation, you should be able to add nitrogen to your system without having to actually pay for fertilizer, which is one of the reasons that we really like to have them in an agronomic rotation because it takes some of that fertilizer burden off of the farmers. We don't know how well sun hemp will form those relationships here in Wyoming. So that also is something that we are trying to understand and figure out with the project. Cool. Very cool. Jerry, did you have any more questions? Oh, yeah. So uh, I've seen, and, and so the word hemp doesn't necessarily mean that it's like any other hemp crop, because uh, when I asked if it was tall, uh, I had watched a, a video of the tall hemp being cut, and they had two cutter bars. One was just like the old cutter bar for hay down on the bottom. And then another cutter bar was up here about four foot. So I was curious as to how, how we were cutting it and getting ready to process. Yeah, that's a good question. So I guess to step back, not all hemp is cannabis hemp. Right. So when we, you know, a lot of times recently with the changes in the farm bill and everything, when, you hear, when people hear the word hemp, you think industrial hemp which is related to cannabis. Right. So this is a completely different crop, genus, species, has nothing to do with cannabis, has none of those regulations associated with it. So growing it is not going to be something you have to apply for permits for, but it is still a fiber crop. So if it were allowed to get to its full height, you're right, Jerry, you would need a different harvesting system than what we would use for like swathing alfalfa or right. a wheat crop. When we ate it last summer, we intentionally did it when the crop was like three and a half, four feet tall. Oh yeah. Uh, so we based it on trying to evaluate what our swather could handle and that's how we made the decision of, of the timing to go in and harvest that crop. And so does it still bloom? Is it a blooming crop? It does bloom. It is a, oh gosh, I think it's, now, now I'm having a, a mental forgetful moment. It's a long day plant, I believe. So in order to bloom, it needs to see a certain period of day length. And in, so above a certain latitude, it takes longer for it to bloom and it doesn't set seed. So in our growing region, we do see flowers, which are pretty, but I have yet to see seed set on that crop, which in some ways is great because we don't have to worry about volunteers. We don't have to worry about it becoming invasive. The genus that it's in, some of the other species can have some toxicity to their seeds. So when we're talking about livestock feeding, it's just better if we don't have to deal with the seeds at all and just completely remove that from the, the realm of possibility of, of them ingesting them. The problem is it's hard to get seed for it. Right. So right now, 
I get seed from Green Cover, which is a Nebraska cover crop company, but they get seed from India. So there's in the South at um, Auburn and the University of Florida and then the USDA, they all have breeding programs that are working on trying to get rid of that day length sensitivity so that we can improve the seed sources we have available in the US and we can actually produce our own seed, hopefully making it cheaper to purchase for farmers. Yeah. Any, any so, idea when that research might come to fruition? They, so there's, um, I think, I think the USDA has one variety that they have released. And I think the University of Auburn has two or three, but it's, it's still hard to get those named varieties. They haven't ramped up the production of them fully yet. Okay. And Carrie, then since it's a fibrous uh, crop, is there another market for it other than as a feed source? Could it be rope, uh, furniture, clothing? Mm -hmm. It absolutely could be, and it is used for that in other countries. So like India, where it's more commonly grown, they will use it for a fiber crop uh, yeah. to produce different products. You know, here our fiber industry is not as flexible to take on new sources of material. And really the intention of the project is trying to find an alternative for livestock feed. In the summer months when, you know, like if you think about the hailstorms that we get or late freezes where you might lose a corn crop or a bean crop kind of early in the season and you need to replant, this could be a crop that could come in and be a rescue crop where you're going to be able to put it in in you know June and get three or four tons of essentially alfalfa quality hay off of it that you can then use to supplement versus the annual warm season grasses that we're planting at those that time where you're getting a grass feed value instead of a, a legume feed value and the nutritional content is just a little bit different. So we're really focused on the livestock use of it. Very cool. Uh, Jenna, I feel like we're leaving you out. <laughs> I think she's working. We're, we're leaving you out of the conversation. <laughs> I'm picking mud out of my shoes. So if that's worth carrying, then sure. <laughs> so the, both of you uh, are assisting with the field day. I'm making that assumption. Correct. So are there, are there other things that Jenna, that you would like to share about the field day that people need to know about? So one research project that our, that I'm helping with, I guess that our lab is working on this year has been an interesting full circle project where it started out with looking at shade avoidance in sugar beets. And so we wanted to determine what type of weed pressure can sugar beets withstand before they germinate and how much shade basically from weeds or a cover crop can they tolerate? So we found obviously, and this is not new to anybody necessarily, is that if there's shade and there's, um, you know, competition for sunlight, those plants get really tall and spindly rather than kind of wide and cover a lot of soil. So over the years, what we have tried to do then is like take that principle and get our dry bean height 
higher so we can have less harvest loss with direct harvest of dry beans. Um, so instead of the traditional methods, we would um, use direct harvest and then try and get those pod heights a little bit higher. And instead of relying solely on different varieties, if we can move the bean pod higher purely due to competition with other plants and intentionally planted cover crop like wheat and get those bean pods a little bit higher. So we've done that and we've gotten the pod height higher. We had some harvest loss though. So now we're seeing what type of weed suppression we can get to overcome the harvest loss. Can we spray less herbicide then if we're out competing the weeds in the beans? So we took a detour with the beans to then also answer the same question with the sugar beets. Okay. And if we have winter wheat planted um, before our sugar beets go in, can we rely less on herbicides to control early season weeds in sugar beets and have some competition there with the weeds? So the weeds would compete with the wheat or a cover crop, typically wheat. And then we would rely less on our early season herbicides and then maybe only do you know one application and later in the season of Roundup with our sugar beets. So we're kind of using these various crops to answer various questions and it takes a couple of seasons. So we will have this stop at the field day with the beans and the pod heights going higher on the beans. And then, so this year at the field day, the bean study has progressed enough that we will now see a difference in weed suppression on the cover crop. And it's just the first year for the beets that we're looking at weed suppression for the beets. So that one isn't as interesting to look at because we are still working on the timings for those. But yeah, we're, we're also trying to, you know, in our lab, we look at a lot of weed science research, but that doesn't necessarily mean we only look at herbicides. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so, can, oh, can I ask a question of yeah, Jenna? Yeah. I'm gonna hop in. So Jenna, one of the questions that weed scientists always ask me when I do work with cover crops, is what is the difference between having a cover crop or a weed in the plot if they're doing the same thing, which is covering the soil and competing with the crops in the field? So why, why is having a wheat cover crop a better option than just kind of letting your weeds go early and then spraying those out when you don't want them in there anymore? So in ours specifically, it would be uniformity and timing. So if we plant wheat in the fall, or even if we were able to get it in early in the spring, it should be suppressing the weeds enough and we have better control options for wheat. And if it gets out of control, <laughs> You know, it's it's a little bit easier to manage than say if we have a two inch tall kosher one day and then a two foot tall kosher the next week. You know, wheat I think we can predict a little bit better, and there's also more uniformity. We don't have as many different species, right? So with weeds, even within the one acre plots that we're kind of or one acre um, study areas that we're looking at, we do have a lot of diversity. Even on half of the study area, it might be all grasses and it might be kosher. And then in one corner, we have a bunch of lambs porter. And so to try and manage 
the growth of that. So we're not necessarily out competing weeds with other weeds, right? They're just going to still be weeds. <laughs> Cause I'm going to tell you, if you need another plot, our garden is primarily a weed base. We go down the aisles and the rows with a weed eater. So I can see your, your, your idea quite clearly with the wheat because it would be easier to manage and maintain. What would you spray for wheat to kill it? Yeah, so since it's a grass, any herbicide that works on grass uh -huh. uh, will should not impact, if it's applied on label, should not impact your beets or your beans. And then since beets are typically uh, Roundup ready, so they're resistant to Roundup, glyphosate's a really great option for the wheat that we plant as a cover crop. Yeah. But not all of your crops in your garden, Jerry, would tolerate glyphosate. <laughs> no, hopefully, I was, hopefully none of them. <laughs> yeah. I was just yeah. primarily concerned with the weeds. <laughs> yeah. It's, we need a different name because wheats and wheat and weeds and beets and beans get really hard to say all, all at the same time. <laughs> Tongue tied. Yeah. You're doing a great job, Jenna. <laughs> so, so I'm sorry, go ahead, Jenna. No, go, go, go. If, if people want to attend the field day or, or open house or both, whatever we're calling it, uh, we would like them to RSVP, correct? Yes. So, so they can. Yeah, go ahead. So it's on Wednesday, August 25th, and it starts at 3 p.m. And they can RSVP uh, via the phone number, which is 307-837-2000. One other question then. Keep going. What are we serving? Because, you know, some people will only come for the food. Wait a minute, Jerry. Didn't your mother ever tell you that that's rude to ask what's for supper? <laughs> yeah, but if it's an open house, you go, well, what are you serving? <laughs> well, here's the thing, Jerry. I think it is a surprise. Oh, you know? yeah. It could be hot dogs or it could be prime rib. I mean, you'll just have to come in and find out what we're going to serve. Also, <laughs> I don't know. So All right. Keep it a surprise. It surprise. is catered. What we can promise you is that Carrie and I are not cooking. Hey. So that'll be... That'll be worth coming for. Yes. Yeah. And, in, and in the past, we've had a ice cream truck show up, haven't we? Something like that. Um, we have, but they're booked this year, which oh I shouldn't God. put out because that may deter some people. So I know we have another dessert option that is okay. coming in. But unfortunately, that ice cream truck is booked, which is great for them and their business. We're always yes. happy to see businesses be successful. Um, busy. Yes, absolutely. Very good. Okay. So, Jerry, it would be dinner and dessert but you got to be there to get it. You got to be there. You, you can't, you can't have somebody else pick it up for you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. You have to show up. So uh, Jenna, earlier, before we started the program, you had mentioned you'd been out uh, checking beets. Is that correct? Something about beets, working in beets, doing yes. something with beets? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was it related to the trial that you uh, we're speaking about yeah one of the yeah one of the studies was so we're doing somewhat of an early harvest uh just because we don't we're not going to harvest them necessarily for you know sugar to, to, for sugar yeah we just need the biomass to see 
how much our cover crop, which was wheat, it impacted our biomass. And it is, it is interesting to see. So I'm up here in Powell today doing that, but it's a similar study that we have in Lingle as well. And the plant or the plots that had wheat in them have significantly less weeds. Mm. So yeah. it's encouraging to see. Um, it just depends, you know, how much biomass we're losing <laughs> yeah. due to the wheat. So just for my uh, personal clarification, you're talking a cover crop. You went in there either last fall or this spring and planted wheat. You're not relying on wheat straw from last year's harvested crop, are you? Correct. So over the years, we have used stubble. And so we used stubble at various heights and then planted into stubble. But what we're finding is having a green crop impacts the shade avoidance more than just having the stubble. stubble. Right. So the plants really, the, the crop that we're looking at, beets or beans, rely on kind of this interference of red to far red light and what that ratio is. And the reason that ratio gets impacted and it sends a signal basically to the crop that we want um, is if there's another green crop there. So plants are actually pretty smart and they can tell if there's, if there's still a seed in the ground and, they, and they're not getting the far, the far red to red ratio that they need of that light spectrum on that seed, they won't germinate. So we're trying to manipulate how that ratio a little bit with our, with our cover crop. Jerry, you look fascinated. I am, you know, I was just remembering some of my own history. We used to, long ago and far away, we used to grow a lot of pumpkins and we'd even sell them at our house commercially. And so one year I asked this friend of mine that ground hay and ground straw, I said, hey, can you grind some straw for me? And he says, sure. So I said, all right, I'm going to put this out and I'm going to put my, my pumpkin plants. And then I want you to, uh, before I plant, I want you to throw out some, some ground straw. He says, sure, I can do that. Well, to, unbeknownst to me, straw contains wheat seeds. So along with my pumpkins coming up, straw was, or wheat was starting to come up as well. And I got all excited and got down on my hands and knees and started pulling wheat. And maybe listening to Jenna, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe the, my pumpkins would have done just as well with a little competition. So I think, I, I think, I think this stuff is amazing. Yeah. Plants are really interesting. I think if you have the time and, a, and um, the ability to pull the wheat to kind of save your pumpkins, I would, I would still go for that option. <laughs> this is more, um, yeah, like on a large scale, how can we, so some of the overarching motivation to look right at other control options other than herbicides is some herbicides are not going to be effective for much longer or as effective as they have been. And so what we might find Jerry is that if you were, if you were ready to pull the wheat in your pumpkin patch, everybody else might start have to having to pull their weeds too. <laughs> yeah. If these if herbicides, you know, aren't used properly and effectively, we will have to seek other options. And I, I, for one, hope I'm not around when hand pulling is the only option because 
it's daunting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I will tell you that that's the first time I got to see a mother spider carrying her babies. <laughs> I was under the canopy of my pumpkins, and there this mother spider was fairly close to my eyeballs, and I kind of screamed. And my wife says, what are you doing? I said, oh, nothing. I just... Uh, Stuff my finger. <laughs> I wouldn't, I, I didn't dare tell her because she would quit pulling wheat as well. Yeah, I, I think that would be the general consensus. Yeah. Yeah. But they're <laughs> you're going to have to spray, you're going to have to spray for the spiders and then go pull your wheat. I think the spiders were somewhat of a pollinator. No, not uh, a pollinator. They're, they're, they're eating the bad bugs. Okay, eating bad bugs. But don't they get pollen on them as well and they crawl around? They might, but uh, they aren't very effective at... Uh, Not effective. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they get things on them all the time. Hey, uh, this seems like a good opportunity to take a break. Uh, let's listen to our sponsors and we'll be back right after this. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension, the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The UWAgnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. And subscribe to our monthly email newsletter. Bookmark UWAgnews.com today. UWAgnews.com. Growing people, knowledge, and communities. Jerry Urshabek for the KERM Lawn and Garden Program. Our guests today are Carrie Eberly and Jenna Meeks from the University of Wyoming. They've been sharing with us things that are happening out at CEREC and the uh, uh, getting ready for the field day slash open house that's going to happen out there. And we have more things that we'd like to discuss with them. So Jenna, I know that you had a question for Carrie, so fire away. <laughs> so Carrie, you and I have visited about this before, and I think you do it great job of explaining kind of the rationale for why CEREC exists, right? So if people, so, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, so before we actually start speaking CEREC, since we've been talking about the research station, why don't one of you explain what CEREC is and why we call it that? Okay, I carried you, I can do that if you want. Go for it. <laughs> okay, so... CEREC stands for the Sustainable Ag Agriculture Research and Extension Center. And CEREC is one of the research farms in the Ag Experiment Station for the University of Wyoming. There are four research stations throughout the state. There's CEREC, which is located in Lingle, Shrek, which is in Sheridan, <laughs> aptly named the Sheridan Research and Extension Center. There's the Powell Research and Extension Center, PREC, and then there's LREC, which is the Laramie Research and Extension Center. So CEREC came into existence in 2006, seven. I think the sign on outside says 2006. Yeah. Yeah. So CEREC came into existence in 2006, named the Sustainable Ag uh, Research and Extension Center partially to look at this interaction between livestock and crops and other aspects of sustainability, including the economic and kind of social aspects of agriculture. So that was the charge of CEREC initially. So we at CEREC conduct research to answer some of these overarching questions 
about agriculture and how to make it more sustainable in the into the future. And and kind of looking at the whole entire system, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So the systems approach, like I mentioned, with kind of integrating crops, livestock, economics, uh, the social viability, right? So we're and not that all research stations don't also think about this and researchers think about this all the time too, is kind of a systems approach and, you know, incorporating multiple disciplines into a research project. But CEREC has a unique set of resources available to it to allow for that systems type approach. So then what was your question for Carrie? (laughs) So my, so Carrie, we get, I get asked this sometimes. And so I have, I have pawned this question off on you because I think you do a great job of explaining it. So why do we conduct research and what is CEREC's role in research and how is that different than some variety trials or demonstrations? And I guess, why do we even do research? So answer all of those questions. (laughs) (laughs) One at a time. We've we've got a couple more hours, right, Jeff? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess first I will start with, I'm going to plug our field day again in this talk about research stations and why we are there and what we do. At our field day this year, Dr. Eric Webster is going to be there and he is the new director of the Ag Experiment Stations for Wyoming. So some of you may have known Brett Hess, who was in this position previously, and Eric Webster is the new person. So if you're very interested in Ag Experiment Stations and what their charge is, you can come and interrogate him as much as you want at the field day. (laughs) He'll love that. Yes. (laughs) And he expects it. He expects it. He does. Yes. So come and come and ask him difficult questions. Remember, you're paying his salary. So you are welcome to ask him as many questions as you want to. As far as why CEREC needs to do research or why the university needs to do research. Um, So the University of Wyoming is a land grant university. As part of that, we are charged with serving the ag community and the citizens of the state um, as far as agricultural education. There are many different groups that do agricultural research. So you have industry who does very well-funded agricultural research related to seed and product development and chemical development, new chemical formulations that is really driven by right their product stream and delivering those products to the farmers. You have the United States government, so the USDA, the ARS, that does other types of agricultural research that's a little more similar to what we do in the university sector. Our stations and the land grant stations are really designed to serve their state and their region specifically. So we're trying to conduct research that is directly applicable to our stakeholders that we're going to be able to help uh, make the state more successful and deliver answers to growers that they need. The difference between what the university does and what, say, an industry partner would do is we're doing more foundational and discovery research. So Jenna was talking about her project with 
wheat as a cover crop and uh, shade avoidance in sugar beets and dry beans and how you can use that to try and improve the pod height of dry beans to improve direct harvest. That's not something that you're going to find at your local seed dealer on their farm where they're doing variety trials or showcasing how, you know, new precision ag works. So we're, we're doing the, the groundwork and discovery on things that, you know, there might not be money in it for like a company to make, but it still could be beneficial to farmers. And we don't know the answer to the questions that we're asking. So we're, we're trying to ask novel questions and find the right answers to them versus just testing something that has already been heavily researched. Um, so we do sometimes do things like variety trials where we will put out, you know, different dry bean varieties or wheat varieties and when, the, when CEREC or the university does those, it's really that we're trying to be an impartial party in delivering the information to the growers. So if we do a variety trial, we may have 20 different varieties that are from four different universities and six different companies, right? And we're putting them all in the same trial. And when we get the results, we say, here's the information and we give it to everybody. That may not be true if a private company is doing a variety trial and you know they, they don't have the same requirement to show all the data as, as we do. So it's an, it's an impartial source of information where we don't have a, a horse in the race. We're just Reporting trying to, the, yep. yeah, we're just, we're just trying to get the information that and have it be as correct as we possibly can and provide it to the stakeholders to make sure they can they can do it. So it's a little bit twofold. There's that impartial component and then there's that that novel discovery aspect of of the research. And Carrie, what I think is so cool is that hey, if you're a young farmer or an old farmer or even a whatever kind of a crop grower you are hey, you guys have already done it, been there, done that. Hey, that doesn't really work so good around here, but this does. I think that's just a super idea. Yeah, and we, you know, sometimes the university and research moves slower than we would like it to because we like to be really sure in what we're telling people. So oftentimes I interact with farmers and, you know, you'll hear a story of, oh, I you know, planted my wheat behind some safflower last year and my yield was like twice as much and I didn't have any sawfly. I'm making this story up. This is not true. Please don't. <laughs> Basically, Please don't do this. <laughs> I mean, not that it would be bad to plant wheat behind soft, uh, safflower, but, you know, you'll hear something that worked well for a grower and you want to follow up on it and see if you can can repeat it. But for us, we have to do that at least two years, if not more, before we're confident in recommending something to growers. So we try and be, while we're slow sometimes, like you guys had so many questions about the Sunhemp project, and I would love to have all the answers right away. We do try really hard to be sure when we get the answers that they're 
correct in, in what we're telling people. So we're always happy to troubleshoot. We're always happy to, you know, discuss ideas and let you know what we've seen and um, provide as much information as we can. And yeah, sometimes we have really good results and sometimes we hedge our bets a little bit and um, hem and haw because that's the joy of agriculture, right? There, it's, it's never does what you want it to. Well, and, and sometimes uh, we're the victim of what our growers are too, right? Nasty mm -hmm. hail problems, water issues, those types of things. We're dealing with it too. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Great. Jerry, any other questions for these two ladies? I think not, but you know, it, it's one of those deals that if you, if you have these words to say, we'll get them next year, Frank. <laughs> well, oh, okay. So I've always said that about my garden. We'll get them next year, Myrna. And so there's always that kind of hope and promise that maybe next year will be better. And it's good that he have research to back some of that stuff up instead of just folklore. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, we try we try and avoid the folklore in our research. That is for sure. <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, ladies, thank you very much for joining us today. We appreciate your time, taking the time to uh, share your knowledge with us. And if one of you one last time would provide information on how to attend the field day open house, that would be great. It's so the field day at CERIC is next Wednesday, August 25th. It starts at 3 p.m. If you are able to RSVP, we would appreciate that, but it is not required for attendance. So if the day comes and you're 2.30 and wondering what you're going to do for the rest of the day, come on out at 3 o'clock, even if you didn't call. That's fine. Um, but if you can RSVP, the number is 307-837-2000. Um, and if you don't show up at 3, but you want to show up at 4 or 5, that's also fine. As Carrie mentioned, we will have um, some dinner, some posters you can look through, and uh, some, some presentations. We have a keynote speaker, but there's also some other speakers uh, happening that will tour you around the farm. So just kind of show up when you can, what you're interested in. Again, August 25th starts at 3 p.m. It's two and a half miles west of Lingle. Google Maps is actually takes you there. It doesn't take you to middle of nowhere. So Google Maps, uh, University of Wyoming, Sarah, two and a half miles west of Lingle, next Wednesday, August 25th. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you very Check much. Check out our Facebook page. <laughs> yes. Follow us on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Jerry, are there things going on uh, this weekend that we need to talk about? You know, I don't have a thing. Really? I'm sure there are. I'm sure there is. Yeah. <laughs> this time I don't have anything. Uh, but I'm sure that there's something, you know, you know, I'm, I'm just going to enjoy this weather that we're having and maybe go out and cut the lawn. Perfect. Because I think that that probably is going to be one of those things that will be most enjoyable with a lower temp. Exactly. Sounds good. Uh, for all of our listeners out there, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, get out and grow something this weekend, I guess. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with the University of Wyoming Extension Specialist, Jeff Edwards, and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Listen each week for details on new events and how to make your garden flourish. Good day and happy gardening.